Um, we are joined this week on Zero Ambitions Podcast, um, the podcast with extremely high ambitions. Are we allowed to get that cheesy? I don't know. I think we can. Um, <laughs> um, we've got Rachel Owens from um, ACAN and several other hats as well. And Peter Smith from Beyond Zero Homes. And I'm sure also got several hats on. Um, and Jeff's, Jeff's here today as well. Hi, Jeff. Hi, yeah, I'm hanging around uh, like like a bad smell. Yeah, <laughs> Duncan's sitting in here with us somewhere as well, but yeah. he's had he's had a bit enough of his own voice this week. <laughs> yeah, and some red wine. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, like, let's get straight into it. So, Rachel, do you want to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about what you're um, up to these days? Yeah, thank you so much, Sarah, and thank you everyone for having me on the podcast. Yeah, really in- excited about this conversation. So. Yeah, my name is Rachel. Um, I'm an architect um, and head of sustainability at Buckley Gray Yeoman. Um, I'm also a coordinator um, or one of the coordinators of the Embodied Carbon Group in the Architects Climate Action Network, as well as also the Climate Literacy Group. Um, And over the last year, I've been really focusing on trying to talk about regulating embodied carbon, how we understand the embodied carbon emissions that come from the buildings that we build and infrastructure projects and how we lower those. And I think we'll probably talk a bit about what that term embodied carbon means in a minute and its sort of context within whole life carbon. But yeah, that's my focus. Sometimes I do a little bit of lecturing at the University of East London. um, And I'm just really keen as well that we try and promote climate literacy and have these conversations as often as possible to make it much more mainstream to talk about these issues. Thanks Rachel, I think we'd like to talk a bit about what ACAN have done around um, embodied carbon but uh, Peter do you want to just introduce yourself first and then we'll come back to that. Sure yeah thanks a lot, I'm Peter Smith, I work for Roderick James Architects and uh, I guess the reason that I was invited along today was because I was uh, involved with the the COP26 house, uh, a a timber, uh, homegrown timber house that we built as a showcase for COP26 to to show the world and our own uh, leaders in in government, local authorities, what we can do with with the timber that we can grow in this country and, and how we can meet our housing targets and our climate targets at the same time. I think it's really great, and I can't wait to hear more about the the detail of the house um, and and you know how that sits relative to the conversations we're having about whole life carbon as well. Yeah. Um, but Rachel, can you tell us just a little bit about what ACAN has done on embodied carbon, and maybe just a little bit of like what are we talking about when we say embodied carbon? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think it's really good to do these sort of clarifications at the start, just to make sure that everyone's on the same page. So to try and sort of put this briefly. Um, When we're talking about the emissions, the greenhouse gas emissions that come from the buildings that we um, design and build, um, we're looking at the whole life cycle of the building. And that can be broken down into two types of emissions. So they're the operational emissions and they happen when you heat a building and you cool it. You use your plug in appliances, your lighting. And those sorts of emissions have been regulated for more than 50 years now. And we talk about them all the time and they're still incredibly important. And that efficiency of buildings and reducing those is is very, very important. But on the other side, there's also what we call embodied carbon emissions. So these are all of the emissions that are caused by the materials that go into a building, manufacturing those, mining them, transporting them to site, constructing them on site. 
but also the emissions that happen when we repair products in the building, when we replace items, when we demolish a building, what happens at the end of its life. So there's a whole story that happens right from before a building is sort of even conceived right through to the end of its life. And we need to be thinking about all of those emissions in a sort of holistic way. Um, so in ACAN, um, we've sort of thought for a while now that there's a big sort of hole within the regulatory sort of picture where embodied carbon emissions aren't regulated at all um, at a national level. So there's no requirement to measure these emissions at all. So we don't even need to understand how many of them there are. Um, and Rachel, and, how many, just, I think this is a really mm, interesting thing, just for like comparison, mm, as an example of a particular, it doesn't matter what typology, it doesn't matter particularly what, but what can the proportion of a whole life carbon of a building and its operational carbon, how, how what does that split look? Because this is, I think, what's yeah. quite shocking. I think this is it. And it's changed a lot over time. So maybe 20 years ago, operational emissions would have been the biggest part of the pie. But as we've made our buildings more and more efficient, Nowadays, if we're designing low energy buildings, embodied carbon emissions can be about 75% of the total emissions from that building. So it's a huge chunk of the emissions that we're talking about. And there's also, you know, a lot of knock-on impacts that come from the activities that we use to make these products. So we're also talking about air pollution. We're talking about biodiversity loss. Um, and there are lots more wider implications to this. Thanks. Um, so, yeah, so in terms of what ACAN have been doing, um, we launched um, in January this year a campaign to regulate embodied carbon. Um, we launched a report called the Carbon Footprint of Construction. And what we're really pushing for is for this to be regulated at a national level. Um, we think that it should be included in building regulations. There's been a great campaign released called Part Z, which would advocate for a new building regulation. And we also think it needs to go into national planning policy. Um, but there are also lots of opportunities for local authorities as well. Um, and maybe I can touch on that a bit, bit later on in terms of, you know, what they can do and how potentially local authorities have the ability to move a little bit faster than national government does. And you also generated a briefing note, right? That's exactly helpful for local um, government to sort of educate a little bit around and support them in their journey of learning about this, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it was, it's been a bit of a learning curve from us. And I think one of the... Um, key takeaways that we got when we talked to lots of people who do these sorts of documents was yes fine you can produce a 50 page document with all the information but you really need like a two pager that someone can read really quickly so we've got two two page briefing notes one for people who can make decisions at a national level and then another one for people that can make decisions at a local level um, and it gives them lots of advice about how this is done before what policies they might want to put in place um, and you can find them on the ACAM website. Uh, Jeff, did you have a point? Yes, amazing. Look, I just, for starts, I just wanted to thank you, Rachel and Peter, for coming on because this is an issue that I mean, okay, the podcast is young, um, but uh, it's an issue that we 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 have neglected really so far. Um, it's been to, to use a, a a pretty pretty probably ill-advised metaphor. It's like it's been the elephant in the room, and it's been mm. a particularly gassy. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's been basically defecating all over the room and the room's going to have to be knocked and then we're going to have to build another room because, you know, and the, so it's it's something we absolutely need to address. Um, I was really, really taken by the fact that you were talking about addressing this at planning stage, because as we've been starting as a, as a magazine to to engage with this, to get building uh, life cycle assessments done and body carbon calcs done, um, 
on buildings that we're publishing about, it's immediately apparent that there's decisions that are taken uh, at planning stage, um, whether it's the size, whether it's um, uh, even stuff like, you know, the kind of foundations you go for, the amount of excavation. Yeah. It's extraordinary some of the sums we're seeing. Um, I, I think it'll, you know, uh, when people see the figures in our next issue, they'll be, their jaws will hit the floor in terms of, of, of the kinds of uh, figures you can see just through failure to consider these issues early enough in a project. So I think that idea is, is fantastic and, and using local government to, 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 uh, to embarrass national government into action is just brilliant, yeah. And I can say as an architect as well, who is operating in a London borough, um, we met with a, um, a councillor who's very much involved in the environment side and asked um, if there was anything that they needed and was able to have the opportunity to send that briefing note directly to this councillor who will be talking to the cabinet members. And it is that kind of inroads, like it's just offering and asking because you're, I think you mentioned this earlier, Rachel, local government are really keen. They're re- they want to do all of this stuff, but they just need the support. And this is what mm. I think is really great about the efforts that are put in by um, groups such as ACAN and Letty. Really, really thorough industry-based um, guidance um, from people who want to help. And I think that's really um, an important point about it, that it does get used. It's not just pushed out into the ether. Yeah, and I suppose I'd add to that as well. Like this legislation does exist it's not something that local authorities need to make up so the GLA the Greater London Authority has a policy on whole life carbon emissions Um, and it's a really great document you have to submit different amounts of information at different stages so really really early stages they're asking you to look at like can you build less can you build lighter and we'll talk about some of those sort of key big ticket items that you can do Um, and then later they require you to do calculations and at the minute that policy is only applicable to referable schemes. So those really big um, mm. schemes that are like taller than 30 metres or more than 150 residential units. But there's a real opportunity there that local authorities could basically take that policy and apply it to their own mm. um, planning area. Before we go too far there, I think we could just go that down there and then Peter, you'd just be sat there <laughs> quiet as a mouse in the background. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm listening <laughs> intently. It's all... <clears throat> There's a lovely, um, like, there's a great opportunity here to talk about this real experience of, of something that you guys put together um, at, at COP with the, the COP house. Do you want to tell us a little bit about it? Uh, yeah, it totally, totally ties in. Like everything Rachel's been saying, I, I'm thinking, you know, I, I can see all the the similarities or, or the connections with, with what I've, you know, my own experience as an architect and, and also with this project in particular. So, uh, very quickly, bit of background, Roderick James Architects. Um, Roderick James himself was one of the founding directors of uh, CAT, the Centre for Alternative Technology in Wales, you know. So, um, we we have sustainability in our DNA, it sounds dead corny, but, you know, like, it, we are, uh, as an architect's company, sustainability is a a big part of what we do you know Mm -hmm. we do mostly uh timber frame houses that's our that's our bread and butter and they are inherently sustainable and you know like throughout my career i've it's always been a, a big part of everything that i do but the the whole embodied carbon thing has really only become a thing properly within the last i don't know five years Mm. you know in, in within the industry and and there are things that we've all 
inherently kind of understood, like that uh, kind of concrete and steel need a lot of energy to make them and timber, uh, you know, sucks in carbon dioxide. And we, we all kind of know that a little bit in the background, but uh, I'd never really kind of quantified it or, or understood it properly. And and so this this project, um, you know, I, like a couple of years ago, I was thinking uh, COP is coming to Glasgow. I live here. I work here. Um, we're going to have the eyes of the world upon us. We we need to put our best foot forward and and show uh, everyone and and you know really push the boundaries uh, for a COP because it's such an important one as well. And so I thought let's build one of our little uh, timber houses for COP and and show what we can do with because I've been working on. Uh, with BSW Timber, who are one of our clients, uh, you know, showcasing the use of homegrown Scottish timber. I thought, I bet you that's really good as well, you know, in terms of, but I'd never done a life cycle assessment. And so we got an initial, I thought, before I go around the country asking people to come on board with this crazy project, uh, I better make sure that it, it would actually be zero carbon. Like a, that that was my idea. Let's build a zero carbon house. Let's show people what it looks like. And so we got this initial uh, design-based LCA done that that um, it, it was all quite generic because we didn't really know the exact finishes and, and the equipment that was going in there. So we had to use kind of industry standards. Mm-hmm. But uh, sure enough, you know, the the because it was a predominantly timber house, our embodied carbon was very low. And and the the LCA actually flagged up a few kind of carbon hotspots, like, for example, the foundations. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, we looked at options. We had four or five different options that we looked at to reduce the carbon. So green concrete, steel piles. Um, and in the end, well... Originally, we were going to go for these um, recycled or reused concrete blocks that we oh. happened to find uh, <laughs> kicking about on on an empty site in Glasgow. And there are actually lots of them, you know, all over the the country. There are blocks of concrete or stone, or you know, these these were like bollards around the the perimeter of this site that we were looking at. Yeah. And, and and you know that that's maybe not a, a solution for for everywhere, but there are you know like we're busy demolishing all these concrete buildings from the 1960s, and and you know blowing them up and sending them to landfill. We could be taking them apart into their you know constituent elements like the columns, the walls, the the floor plates, and and reusing them rather than you know turning them into rubble. Yeah, it's a crazy um, game. It's so you know that that was one little example uh, for me, um, and and uh, another one, interesting one. This is uh, a, a conversation that's that's going on elsewhere. Is um, uh, PV panels? You know, they they are made of uh, finite materials. They're they're uh, transported uh, in most cases a very long way to get to us and. Uh, Unfortunately, in Scotland, they don't produce a heck of a lot of electricity either because uh, it, it rains a bit more than uh, elsewhere here. So, um, yep, 
Go ahead. I just was going to say, I'm dying to know what did you do in the end? What were the foundations of the of the? Because you okay, you led yeah, us yeah. there and then you you dropped yeah. us. <laughs> yeah. So so the the two things. Well, on the foundations, the there were a few options, but in the end, uh, this is quite a, a, a funny thing to think about. Um, looking back, um, eight weeks before a cop, we had to change site. The site that we oh, were wow. going to go to. Uh, wasn't available so uh, pretty much overnight within 24 hours we we changed site and the new site that we were going to just it's it's a brownfield site in Glasgow Um, there have been several other buildings on that site before and there just happened to be a a concrete slab from what was a, a petrol station and so we had the engineer down from David Narrow Associates and uh, looked at it and and uh, discussed what we could do. And in the end, we managed just to use uh, timber railway sleepers strapped to the ground. The, the engineer was more concerned about the building taking off in, in high winds. Uh, you know, so he he was more concerned about how we pin it down to the ground rather than, you know, because... It, it's a small uh, building. It, it, to be honest, it it wasn't much bigger than a static caravan, mm. five meters by ten meters, and it's made of timber and wood fiber insulation. You know, so it's quite light, really. Did, did um, you consider, um, in that context, um, these uh, comically oversized uh, uh, ground screws? That 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 yeah, uh, yeah. you know, I, I yeah. know a lot of engineers probably will look at them with with a degree of nervousness. Um, but we've seen multi-story buildings done in yeah. uh, on the continent. Well, you know, I'm saying multi-story, I mean more than one story, right? Um, I'm yeah. getting ahead of myself too much. Um, uh, in in like to Germany, uh, uh, using ground screws, and obviously it will depend on ground conditions. Exactly, and, and yeah. an adventurous engineer. But I mean, we've we've seen them used on on some buildings, parks buildings, where. It's extraordinary how low the embodied carbon um, is, um, and and then of course at the end of the day, I mean obviously if you've got an existing slab, great, you know we'd be yeah. mad not to use yeah. it. But the point is that um that once you pull it out, then it, it, when the build, building eventually ends its life, you've got a you've got a brownfield site, you know, in one go. It's just exactly. it's, it's such an, uh, an amazing kind of uh, innovations like that. I love to see because they're just simple sort of little yeah. fixes, you know. It's that uh, touch the earth lightly. Mm-hmm. Uh, kind yeah. of thing. But there are, you know, like that, that was a one-off for this house. Um, of course, you're not going to get that uh, all over the place. But the the principles and, and the, the ideas that we looked at uh, for foundations, um, you know, all, all it all it takes really is uh, to, to have a closer look at what we're doing and ask the questions and, and go, are there options here? And lo and behold, yes, there are five or six usually. Uh, and and they're all better than business as usual. I, I think there's a couple of things there, Peter, that I'm really glad that you mentioned. I think one of them was looking at really local materials to reuse and what's available around the site, but also this idea of like homegrown timber as well. And I think mm-hmm. one of the topics that we kind of stumbled across was that actually by trying to reduce these emissions, we end up having all of these other knock-on positive benefits, like the fact that you're stimulating the local jobs market um, in forestry, in manufacturing, in reclaiming these materials, um, it's all like a benefit to that specific area that you're building in, and you know, really improving the sort of social value there. 
but also like the benefit of having much cleaner construction sites that feel you know they're less noisy um, there's less pollution that come from them you're disturbing the neighbors less often um, and it feels like there's quite a number of those sorts of additional benefits but I don't know if you sort of saw in in sort of your work if there are any other sort of benefits that you get that's it's not just emissions sort of based it's more um, about the people as well absolutely um uh, there are quite a few uh points there that i was saying yes yes <laughs> yeah. I, um i know i'm scribbling furiously I, are we, how are we ever going to get all of this into this i know <laughs> i know but um yeah so just from memory that you know the homegrown timber thing um it's another one of those decisions you know like it's it's asking the question um because a lot of engineers will just by default say any structural timber has to be c24 now we don't grow c24 timber in this country so that one decision that that little note that is cut and pasted from one job to the next uh has a massive effect on embodied carbon because when you specify c24 you have to go get it from scandinavia or siberia mm. and uh asking the engineer the question well can we not do this with c16 um oh yeah we could and you know just changing that one specification means that we can use timber that we've grown in this country and it helps our industries and looking at what happened with timber supply in the last year, you know, it, it, it makes the, the whole supply chain uh, issue, you know, it's, it's a, um, contractors can be a lot more confident about sourcing their own timber from, from within the UK, you know. So there's, there's other benefits uh, like that, but the most important one, I think, is um, the fact that it feels nice and is good to live in a timber building mm. uh, and and it's actually proven that our you know we've got clinical trials and evidence that shows that it's good for you to live in timber houses and and it's it's not that good for you to live in in concrete and expanded polyurethane and and all of that you know like these man-made materials uh um they're they're not good for us and and that that is proven you know it's not just me saying that there there's evidence that shows that it's true and and that was the nice thing about having this house at cop because everybody who came in you know this is beginning in november in glasgow um there were a few sunny days but generally it was quite wet and cold and everyone who came in as soon as they opened the door their their kind of their their head went up they looked up at the ceiling and their shoulders went down they just kind of breathed out and uh -huh. went ah this is nice <laughs> you know? and and that's what everyone gets in in a in a timber building you know? i think rachel you had, you looked like you were going to say something then jeff yeah, so with fighting the urge to get really sort of nerdy and technical, I think the whole C24, C16 thing is interesting. And I think as a practice, what we're sort of starting to find is that there are pretty standard questions that we need to be asking of all of our consultants on all of our projects. And we're sort of trying to get together like a list of questions that, you know, 
can we use CLT if it's maybe a more sort of large scale project rather than concrete being like a really super obvious one? But do you think that that C24 versus C16, that should be in every architect's, in every QS's sort of mind? Let's just ask that question right at the start. And I don't know, does it have a big um, impact? Are we just talking about using slightly larger section sizes or is it sometimes that you can just use it and actually the calculations still work? Yeah, I mean, we we found that with this house was... um... You know, it, it often C twenty four is just in there as as default, and and sometimes if you switch, you know, depending on uh, what kind of distance you're spanning, what kind of weight is on on a beam, um, it may be or or if it's you know floor joists, you may have to go from six hundred centers to to five hundred or four hundred or whatever. But you know, if it if it means that you can get timber off the shelf even from a local sawmill and and that kind of thing it it's it has a big impact yeah it's worth asking these questions i was just going to say this is fascinating stuff um that the clinical trial you mentioned uh peter i would love to see that and if you can if you can provide yeah. that to us <laughs> afterwards we can uh, maybe provide a link in the blurb on the podcast yeah yeah i um Having been kind of inspired by the work of, in terms of the Direction Art magazine, by the, by the likes of Dr. Ben Goldacre and his kind of a, a principle of applying evidence-based medicine principles to other aspects of life, I can't get my head around how uh, you you couldn't have a double-blinded clinical trial here, for instance, which would be the proper kind of you know the the, the gold standard, I suppose, where where you can because people presumably know they're living in a timber building, right, rather yeah. than yeah. a concrete building, yeah. and yeah. therefore. Uh, how you get around people's? I mean, you know, uh, don't get me wrong. I'm all in favour of timber construction, but, uh, but I'd love to know how that how you uh, address that and control for that in a study um, uh, to, to to just you know to, to, to make sure that you're not just dealing with a pe- group of people who think they're in a nicer mm-hmm. building um, or a healthier yeah. building, and therefore yeah. therefore feel the benefit. Yeah, and then and then the the other point on on transport. Um, I think I think it's fascinating the idea of using local materials. Of course, there's, uh, in, broad, in broad terms, is fantastic. But I'm always a bit sketchy about that because that's been a trope or a, a, an argument that's been used in the past in Ireland by the concrete industry. You know, um, because we happen to have a lot of local supply there. Mm-hmm. This is why I think it's so critical that we now have ex- uh, affordable, accessible, in, even free in some cases, uh, and and intuitive increasingly calculation tools that enable us to actually number crunch this stuff because you know you might find some cases that that uh what we want to avoid happening i suppose is people saying well we don't want to import timber because we've got um you know uh local uh we've got a quarry local to us you know um and um and we can and we can make uh you know without doing that calculation to prove it you know uh, and with a degree of rigor about it you know Hey, sorry for the interruption, and we'll get back to the discussion with the brilliant Peter and Rachel in just a minute. Meantime, we just wanted to ask for some help. We're big fans of Letty and the work they do around Retrofit, and we'd like to ask you to support them so they can continue that great work. Now, Letty is run mainly by volunteers who give their time, mostly within their own time, so they've got no formal funding, organisational sponsorship or income. So if you could support them, it would be absolutely brilliant. So head on over to www.letty.london forward slash donate that's www.letty.london forward slash donate and if you can give them whatever you can that would be great this i think comes back to like 
that this the way that we're kind of talking about all of these things and and oscillating between um this specific question and cancelling this material because concrete is bad well concrete is bad but you know those sorts of um those sorts of things and it comes back to actually what we haven't quite gotten into yet which is climate literacy right so you talk about asking questions um what you know just being simply able to say to your structural engineer can we try c16 instead how many architects out there know that that has that sort of significant difference and also when we're talking about using sort of embodied carbon calculations just understanding that all of those tools are out there but why they're important and having that level of sort of systemic thinking reinvigorated into our education into our behavior as as practitioners you know just knowing that you should ask those questions that comes and sits right behind everything else everything else that we've got and i think this is why climate literacy is so so important but covers everybody it's not just about people who are studying now it's about all of us in 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 practice and and sort of embedding that fundamentally in everything so like bringing that back into mandatory competencies bringing that back into what the role of an architect is what a structural engineer is what all of those things are i think is like absolutely key i mean i don't know rachel do you want to talk to that yeah and i think that when we're talking about doing calculations we have to understand that we do them all at different stages for quite different reasons so you might do a calculation sort of at the end of stage four, or maybe even at the end of stage five, if you want to figure out where you are in terms of a benchmark. And then you're looking at, you know, using one click or maybe doing your own spreadsheets, maybe going into a bit more detail, figuring out where your projects currently lie in order to learn lessons for the future. But I think what we're finding is really useful for our projects that are early stage ones is that we're using the Field and Clegg Bradley tool, which is free. It's amazing. It's great stage one. Um, and what we tend to do with it is say, do sort of a design, which a QS might consider business as usual with concrete slabs, no material reuse, suspended ceilings, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and we sort of visually show what all that looks like, where you would sit on on a scale. Um, and Letty's got some benchmarks on where they think that we should be and different bandings. And then we do the same building, but we make lots of different decisions. So using more timber, using more bio-based materials, taking away materials that we don't necessarily have to use, um, having exposed finishes, um, reusing materials. And we show that graphically and visually. So we'll show the materials, we'll show um, the different moves that we might have made in the plan. And then we'll show where both sort of schemes sit on this on this sort of uh, banding system. And I think that's a really important step in order to be able to communicate this because a lot of climate literacy, I think, also needs to tie to like hearts and minds as well. And um, not just, I think most people don't engage with, if I said to someone, oh, our scheme is 370 kilograms of CO2 per meter squared. Most people don't engage with those sorts of figures. But if you say to them, oh, well, if we use um, timber on this project rather than more steel, then we're going to reduce the embodied carbon emissions by 40%. That sort of thing, I think, is easier to understand. So I think doing the calculations is one thing but then it's the the next step and i think that communication with clients and design teams is something that as architects we need to get better at um making it relatable 
I think we need to get better at it. We need to get past it because I'm thinking when you're talking about like, well, first we do this sort of business as usual and we illustrate what that looks like. Oh God, all of your time spent doing that, convincing people when we already know, like, come on. And I think what came into my mind there was like what Michael Pollan talks about, like possibilism and then and talking about like moving towards regenerative design. And there are lots of people who are talking about that now, which is really exciting because it's about moving past what is the bare legal requirement to build a building that is still fundamentally destructive right the way through to, well, you know, you can do something that's actually regenerative, like you can go that far. So I feel, I feel like a great, I'm, I'm so thrilled and pleased to like see these things happening and particularly with the work that you're doing, Rachel, in this project that you've delivered, Peter, and, and people can see and feel and understand what that means. But it's also a huge frustration when we are talking about having how many years left to make a fundamental shift change and that we still have to prove that building with petroleum based products and like mining stuff out of the ground is a bad idea if you're just going to put it on a linear trajectory and like have it just do the same as we've done before like come on people like catch up oh you're totally right I think I'm going to have an existential crisis now though but um (laughs) no no but you're great you're doing the right thing and I think that was brilliant and I think it I would love to hear both of you as well like talk a little bit about how circularity bring like relates to all this because we're, we're becoming aware of the weight of emissions to, that all of these buildings deliver. And we talked a little bit about like, you know, um, how we how we monitor that at the different stages. But then it's a great thing to talk about reusing materials and finding materials and using locally sourced materials. But also practically, we're not used to that. How do we do that? We're used to going to somewhere and going, I'd like to buy this much material because I need this much material. Can you give me that much material? I don't think anybody really knows where to start in looking around them to see like, well, how do we reuse material? Um, so, yeah. Um, Peter, do you want to talk a little bit yep. about how yep. what what's the future for this building that you guys have built? Because it's not yep. going to stay on the site, right? Nice little queue there. I think. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it, it was uh, a really important part of the design process for this house because we knew after COP, it can't stay where it is. Uh, it's going to have to move. So we designed it. Or it actually came a long time ago, um, This the whole concept of how this house was built. Um, came from a wee project where, where two women <clears throat> who wanted to build a house each uh, for themselves on a site in Mary Hill in Glasgow, uh, they came to me and said, can you design us a house or a build system that, that we could build ourselves? Because we want to uh, try and, and build, you know, we'll help each other build each other's house. And so I, I designed it on this 1.2 metre grid system um, that was kind of Walter Siegel-y, um, you know, like thinking about they're going to get a pallet of, of timber delivered from you know, a, a timber merchant, how are they going to actually do this? And so I thought, right, they'll get a couple of trestle tables. They'll take, you know, two of the the timber studs and then they'll lay out a, a sheet of plywood or whatever, eight before sheet. And so, you know, that's where the, the 1.2 metre grid came from. And so how, how can it be done so that they can do this themselves with hoists and, and that kind of thing? And that uh, has developed over the years to get to where we are now with this, this house and and so that 1.2 meter grid 
is in there from the start. And uh, it was actually quite easy then to think, okay, the the this this house was prefabricated in a factory uh, and brought to site in panels, and so it was quite easy to think, okay, you know, we're, we'll use screws instead of nails and and that kind of thing, and and the the contractor was involved in the process of of drawing up the the panels for a construction, and and so was thinking about how they're they're gonna. Uh, take it apart afterwards and also the the guys on site i told them that they will get the contract to take the building down again afterwards and so they were you know rather than thinking oh it's just you know some some other guy who's going to be taking it it's them so you know i i could see them kind of thinking about the screws and where they're putting them and how they're going to take it apart again and stuff and that that whole thing, you know, that in inherently is is kind of circularity uh, at its best. But there are other things I think, you know, like the AJ Retro First uh, campaign and and um, you know stuff that Letty have been doing as well uh, about um, you know reusing existing buildings. That's you know it, it's got to be your first question, really. I'm I'm lucky enough to work for a company who we do new build houses for you know it's it's one-off houses for for people um and it's it's great work but you know we we do get projects where there's an an existing old farmhouse and uh we we build a, a timber frame extension to that and that kind of thing so mm-hmm. it's you know that 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 um saying the the most sustainable houses or most sustainable building is one that already exists yeah. absolutely yeah i i just that, that brings me neatly onto a point um i mean uh we're we're talking um uh, about when you're introducing what is a new concept to a lot of people uh, in embodied carbon um the fear i think a lot of the time will be when you have a new concept that it's going to cause going to make life difficult and add a lot of cost um but actually what you're pointing out here um is uh, which really relates to the question I want to ask. You know, which is, uh, can, can you show people that that this this may not actually increase costs? It may actually reduce costs in some ways. It may stop you from having to procure things in some ways. And then to completely go back on myself and contradict myself, um, I thought it would be a nice thing to to, to plug the, the the people who donated um, materials, people who want to flog stuff, right, um, on on this project. Because you know, uh, I gather you had people, you had a number of uh, quite innovative uh, suppliers who and i should hasten to add that we're not being funded for any of this on the podcast um uh, who who, um who contributed to the project so it's nice to give a shout out to those companies and you know uh, to to, so so the people who who were telling not to build things can know who to not buy things from yeah who not to buy it's a great pattern because actually while you were telling us about your um modular approach in this house that these two ladies could build for themselves i'm thinking about studio bark and i'm thinking about pulp build and i'm thinking about the wiki house approach to things which is all about open source and sharing and knowledge share because like we're moving away got to move away very quickly from the notion that this doesn't need to become competitive at all. And in fact, we're going to do far better if we're far more collaboratively minded totally. because we're going to share that knowledge. There's absolutely the biggest creative challenge that's available to us all right now is like, you know, it's a finite planet. 
it's the same material that we're turning around and again Mm. like just drop the new there's nothing new there's no need for that it's time to like be really creative could there be a more creative challenge like i i don't think so peter yeah um it's gone already three things i think came <laughs> up anything. within the last two minutes there was three things i've got to say this but um yeah it's it's the 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 sharing of of uh, ideas and everything. What what uh, I've had this chat with with Duncan previously. Um, uh, you know, if if we want to be zero or net zero uh, carbon by twenty thirty, that means we've got eight years. Now, your average build projects, you know, might take two or three or four years. So we've got two or three build cycles from concept to completion. Uh, until we need to be at zero so we've got one or two uh chances uh at this three at the most to to get it right and uh, you know we can't afford to be you know working on a kind of trial and error basis we've we've had that opportunity we've kind of missed it we now need to all group together we're all in the same boat we're all sinking uh <laughs> The boat's on fire and sinking. We're up shit creek. You know, we need to we need to help each other, uh, big style. Yeah. So that was one thing. The other thing, back to what Jeff was saying, uh, it's another thing that, that I kind of learned in the process of building the house. Uh, for example, um, to save cost and to save time, because we only had eight weeks to build this house, we decided okay, we're not going to have underfloor heating and a wet screed that we would have to rip out um, after COP and, you know, um, that, that kind of thing would, would go to waste. So instead, we just put a, a bit more wood fibre insulation from Styco as it happens. And, uh, and then we, we uh, used um, infrared panels from Herschel uh, and I, I, I do have to plug these guys because they were so helpful, uh, all of them, the, the people who contributed to this house, giving us their materials for free and all because they understood the concept. This is a great idea and it has to be done. And so we got these infrared panels that work uh, in the same way as sunlight. They heat up the objects that they're shining on rather than the air around them like a radiator. So you don't get, you know, kind of convection currents and 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 that kind of thing. They 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 use a lot less energy to operate. It feels nice back to that thing about, you know, when when people came in, everybody went, oh wow, this is nice. And it's just that that feeling of being nice and cozy. You know? And it's it's I I kind of describe it as the the feeling of warm sunlight on the back of your neck when you're you're sitting inside and it's it's cold outside. You it's that kind of warmth that you feel. You know? yeah. Um. So that that was uh, the one thing about the you know um, the different materials, but also it reminded me way back at the start. Uh, I was talking about uh, PV panels, you know, and and the embodied carbon in in getting them to this country, and also the fact that uh, the the national grid uh, in in Scotland, I think, we're ninety seven percent renewable uh, now, you know, because we've got lots of wind and rain. <laughs> uh, 
and and not so much sunshine so it, it you know it makes more sense to or almost um it's it's different on every job and i can't really generalize but um you know it's worth thinking about these things as well you know uh things that we might say oh yeah we'll have some pv panels because they're good but actually you ask the question again and and then you realize hmm, there are there are downsides and well, just mentioning PVs, before we came on, I sent Rachel a message just saying, I'm just listening to this really frustrating webinar where somebody was trying to equate, you know, they were talking about the square meter of wall that's built to building reg standards. And this is how much energy you lose through that wall. And here's the same wall built to benefit standards. And this is how much energy you lose through that wall. Now, the difference between them was a number. And he was trying to say that you could just build a building rig standards and put a PV panel on that roof of that building. And then that offset the energy that you lost through that wall. And I couldn't help thinking to myself, no matter if you can make the numbers work like that, that is a damaging way to think. Mm-hmm. And it is absolutely not helping us. Mm-hmm. And particularly, like, there's no point in trying to protect the, the way that we've been working that hasn't been working. If, like you said, Peter, we've got these very few opportunities left to get this better and to get this right. And mm. um, Rachel, I don't know if you had a, a point on that. Yeah, I think, I mean, in terms of that topic, yeah, I completely agree with you. And I think this is why we need to consider everything in the round, in the whole, um, because otherwise we're just not going to make the right decisions. And we're going to make these mistakes that are going to be really costly because those emissions as well from producing that PV panel are happening right now. Mm. And also the pollution that's happening in other countries and the damage that we're doing to people. And obviously we need PVs, but the first thing we need to do is reduce, reduce our consumption, reduce our use, and then use them. And I think there's a hierarchy, right? But I suppose what I was going to say was that I think in terms of circularity, what from this conversation that to me that feels really positive is that there's so many opportunities at very different scales. So I think um, Peter and I probably work at very different sort of scales and types of buildings. So we do a lot of um, projects based in cities. Um, we're often presented with existing buildings. And I mean, the first thing that we're always trying to do is retain as much of the existing as building as possible. And I think we all probably agree that that's if you can do that and it's not a one story shed where you could build lots of great houses for people, then I think if we can reuse and still get the right amount of density, really good quality space, then we should always do that. Um, but I think what we're also seeing is that we we work with quite a few of the sort of large um, estates of people um, and businesses that own maybe lots of buildings in an area of the city. And we're seeing what they're doing probably as a small scale version of what needs to happen at a national level. So we're, we have a, we have projects where we are looking to use some new steelwork and they have um, elsewhere in the city um, a scheme that is currently undergoing demolition. Um, And what our structural engineers have been able to do is get the drawings from that site that is the demolition is happening on, um, catalogue all the steelwork and then figure out how they can use all that steelwork in our new um, parts of our building. Um, And I think this is something that's really gaining traction. Um, There are companies like Cleveland Steel, who you can take will take away the steel work and they will test it and they will um, remanufacture it for you so that you can use it again. Um, and I think more and more of those sorts of initiatives need to be coming into people's minds. And I mean, just to sort of summarise, uh, just to finish as well, I really like the idea of getting more into like material mapping 
And I know that Duncan Baker Brown, for example, does some great material maps. And I think that could be a really positive way that we start to get a better understanding of what's out there um, within the sort of local area to try and reuse as much as we can. I think that's a really exciting sort of prospect. I, re- I really agree. I think we've we've kind of touched on so many things here that we could go off on and just do individual podcasts on their own and maybe that we should. Um, I think what's been really sweet there for any of our listeners who can't see anything, Duncan's wee Rachel looked like his daughter was trying to like batter him with a noodle from a swimming pool. That's, that's exactly what she was doing, Sarah. Is so. <laughs> that sort of saying, here, Daddy, come on, it's lunchtime, enough of this chat. Yeah, pretty much, um, yeah. But, but I think um, maybe we can just sort of wrap up with our kind of um, closing thoughts. Rachel, I think what was really great about what you sort of touched on at the beginning of that is, you know, about livelihoods and people, because fundamentally this is what this is all about. You know, we talk about a planet, but we're, we're obviously caring for those, we're trying to care for those environments, but for, the, for human, for the race, the human race that's living on that as well, we recognise that for far too long, those of us who are in this privileged position to be able to opt in and out of whether we do anything about like climate action, you know, you've got to think about for so long, we've benefited from this global economy, right? And everybody's talking about like being able to trade on this global platform, but have absolutely like turned our backs on the impact that it's been having to global communities, right? Because like by specifying all these things, the, the sheer destruction that it's causing to livelihoods and lives like across the planet. We can't turn it back to that anymore. We've got to see it as an absolutely connected system of things and to have respect for that. So you immediately recognise that every decision that you make has an impact that is much far far wider reaching than we've so far chosen to engage with. So I think this is why it's important, like you say, to look at things in the round, in the whole, as a circular system, part of a global bigger system where we have a responsibility to do better. Um, So I think that's kind of my kind of closing feeling on it all is that this is about protecting the planet and protecting the lives on that. Like that's this fundamental thing that connects it all. Um, Yeah, Peter, do you have any thoughts on the? Totally beautifully put. um, (laughs) Totally agree with with all of that. Um, I I I guess what I would like to get across as well is I know um, there's a lot of good people listening to these podcasts and and people who can make uh, decisions and and help the direction of the the construction industry. and I would say that we, you know, not just with the, the COP26 house, but uh, as as architects, a lot of us have proven that it is possible to, to do better. And and uh, it's we've had enough of doing prototypes and 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 that kind of thing. It, it's time, you know, we, we have to this momentum that we've built up at COP. We've got to keep that going and and let 2022 be the year that you know those decisions actually uh, culminate and and bear fruit and and that we start building better and and you know we're we're ready to go. There's so many of us out there that that have got the knowledge the the mm. we all want to do it. It's it's time for for some of the the local authorities and 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 developers and stuff to to bite the bullet and and try out a few uh, 
I think what we can do as well is maybe, um, Jeff, you mentioned it earlier, but we can put some links to some of the tools and things that we've talked about, you know, in terms, it's great that we're talking about it, but let's also arm our listeners with all of the kind of tools that we know that are out there and the places to learn like lessons from. So we can put some of those. I, I'm saying this like I know <laughs> I'm promising something that Jeff's going to now do, right? <laughs> no, absolutely. And I'd also flag within that, um, that for anybody who's designing uh, passive houses and is using the, P- there's loads of tools, um, but the, the, uh, the AECB has developed a tool off the back of PHP um, called PH Ribbon, which enables you to just basically piggyback on the information you've already inputted in there. Um, and it's it's from our perspective as a publisher, it's been possible for us to quickly um, and inexpensively commission embodied carbon calculations on buildings, um, uh, which is fantastic. And it's it's quick enough um, and and very open source um, that it enables you. I think as a designer, it it gives you it gives you information quickly enough that that it could uh, have a significant impact on 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 how you build. So I think that's fantastic. All I'd like to say in conclusion, really, is, is I think look, it's fantastic uh, conversation today. Uh, thank you so much, Peter and Rachel and Sarah for for raising the tone. And thank and, and I'm, I'm sorry I wasn't quite as quiet as Duncan. Uh, <laughs> would have been a better conversation still if I was. Um, but uh, I, I I guess the point for me is that which you touched on, Sarah, as well, is that. It, this is a critical issue. It's not going to go away, and we absolutely need to address it. And there'd be lots of benefits if we do. But like anything else, uh, it needs to be considered in context, and it can't be, as you said, divorced from. Um, you can't be fundamentalist about these things. It can't be divorced from considerations like the quality of the building that you're providing for people, the quality of the environment you're providing for people. And we can't get into this much in the same way that we shouldn't allow PV, for instance, which is perfectly good technology in the right context, to. To, uh, to to allow it to be used as a kind of accountancy sleight of hand for a, for a, for a bad building. Mm. We shouldn't do the same thing with with, with embodied carbon, you know. Um, uh, but but I think actually, you know, the deeper you get into this, and the more I'm learning about it, um, a lot of the stuff you come, you, the conclusions you you end up reaching are actually really quite intuitive, and that's a it's a, it's a that's a it's a heartening and and kind of empowering thing. So thank you so much. Mm. I guess just last thoughts from me. I think there's two things um, that we really need to keep in mind. Is one is this is fundamentally about people. So every decision we're making, it's the impact on the people that are going to live in these buildings, are going to live next to the site that's manufacturing the materials for these buildings. It's the people that are are being already and will be affected by um, global heating. Um, and this is like it's fundamentally a human reason why we make all these decisions and we have so much power um as designers to make change that i think that's a really positive thing to sort of acknowledge and i think the second thing i would say is it's something that sounds really really obvious but i feel like i just want to say it lots of times building regs are not good practice they are the legally the worst building that you're allowed to make and i think that's oh, just true a minute of... here for all of the ACAN hands. <laughs> Everybody's just waving their hands in, in agreement with what we made to say. <laughs> and I think I realised this the other day when I was speaking to um, an amazing lady called Amy, Amy Francis, who campaigned for um, uh, more inclusive um, design in terms of disability. And we were talking about the um, accessibility building regs and the energy building regs. And we were both saying, hold on a second. They're both just bases. They're the le- legally the worst building that you're allowed to make. We need to be aiming so much higher in, in terms of both aspects. Um, and I think that's a cool opportunity for all of us.
What a great finisher. <laughs> Thank you again. Yeah, just to really take what Jet um, said. Thanks so much for, for coming on and sharing. And I think we're just going to have to continue the conversation beyond, beyond today. But thanks so much. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone. And except minimum.